Hello and welcome to The Check-In. This is your host, David Cadabaugh, checking in from Wheaton, Illinois. Today we are excited to have a special guest with us, a former member of the Telos team, actually, who you are going to love getting to hear from. But quickly, before we get there, I wanted to extend a huge thank you from our team. Many of you, our listeners, donated during our end-of-year campaign, generously supporting our work of forming peacemakers and transforming conflict. With gratitude, we are excited to announce that we met and surpassed our goal of $350,000. None of this would be possible without your partnership, without each of you not only giving, but also going out and getting active for peace in each of your communities. So thank you. And now on with the show. Welcome to the check-in. This is your host, David Cadabaugh, checking in, as I said, from Wheaton, Illinois. We have a small group with us here today. We have Sarah. Where are you checking in from? Reliably from Washington, D.C. We have Sharon. Where are you checking in from? A couple of cubes over from Sarah in Washington, D.C. It's the dream team from D.C. Sadly, we are split up today, unfortunately. But we also have a special guest, Jordan Wilson. Jordan, where are you checking in from? Hi, David. I'm also in Washington, D.C. Dang, I'm missing y'all in D.C. today. But I actually think, as Sarah mentioned, it might be warmer in Chicago today, which is kind of a luck of a draw there. That's not that's not normal. I'm not complaining. Uh, well, Jordan, we are excited to have you with us. Jordan spent the last two years living and working in Brazil and was a core member of the Telos team for many years. And many of you listening might remember him from a trip or a Telos conference in D.C., he made a huge impact on the Telos Network. So we are very excited to have you with us on the show today, Jordan. Welcome. Thanks, David. It is a pleasure to be here with you guys. Awesome. Well, we have an important conversation today based off of the events this past weekend in Brazil. Many of you probably saw some headlines as thousands of Brazilians gathered and stormed the National Congress Supreme Court and Presidential Palace of Brazil in the nation's capital in protest of the results of the recent presidential election in which former President Jair Bolsonaro was narrowly defeated by leftist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who was sworn in on January 1st of this year. Images of the events on Sunday showed destroyed police cars, broken windows, and massive crowds of protesters waving Brazilian flags, many of whom were ultimately arrested. The events have shaken up the nation and international observers and raised questions about the state of democracy and ultimately opportunities for just peace, not only within Brazil, but across the world. So Jordan, let's dive right in. Can you help us understand what exactly happened on Sunday? Yeah. So, I mean, looking at it, I think you you described um, very well sort of kind of the, the, the scenario of what we saw on our news screens. Um, but really, I mean, I think it was another episode in years of very divisive politics in Brazil. Um, and it's politics that has very closely mirrored uh, U.S. politics, almost as close as can be mirrored. And I don't like to draw comparisons that much, but the comparisons here are pretty strong. Um, you know, in 2016, in the U.S., we had a very divisive election where you know, the Democrats were people were kind of tired and so many people voted for this outsider, Donald Trump. Um, and in Brazil, they kind of the same thing in 2018. Uh, they had a very closely contested election, presidential election. One party, the Workers' Party, 
had a history of corruption. They'd seen um, one president become a one former president become impeached. Another former president was in jail. And on the other side, you had this somewhat upstart politician called Jair Bolsonaro, who wasn't technically an outsider because he'd been an elected member of government for a while, but he was sort of viewed as an outsider. And he was elected into power and people didn't really know what they were going to get with him. But they got someone that there's a reason why people have called Bolsonaro the Trump of the tropics. Uh, They are very similar people, Um, thrice married, uh, really embraced by the evangelical community, despite not really being from that community themselves. Um, You know, people who support Bolsonaro would say he's a straight talker who's like a strong man. He's our strong man. And his critics would say he's crass and derogatory towards minority communities, um, anti-environmental, those kind of things. So, you know, that's, that was, that's, Bolsonaro was in, was in power um, the last four years. And he was a very divisive president. Um, People didn't know what they were going to get. And they got someone who was quite divisive. And so uh, after four years, Brazil has, has presidential elections, just like us. And so the last election was in October, and it was very closely contested. We really have in Brazil, a fairly divided society. Lula won on a runoff. So that shows you how close it was. And he won, you know, 50, 52 to 48 or 51 to 49 percent. So you're talking about a very, very divisive election that happened in October. And similar to the US, uh, Bolsonaro had said that, you know, the only way he was going to lose was if the election was corrupt, um, was that there was some kind of cheating involved. And so when he lost, he wasn't as adamant as Trump was in the US about uh, a corrupt election. He kind of slipped away silently, um, but his supporters continued to state that the election had been stolen. And so immediately after the election, I was living in Rio and there were regular protests outside the Navy base, the naval base in Rio, where Bolsonaro supporters were calling for the election to be overturned, for the military to intervene. And so we've been seeing that in pockets throughout the country the last two months since the election. And then that built up to January 8th, when we saw a very similar episode, like we saw in DC in January 6th, a couple of years ago, um, with protesters storming the government. And fortunately, the government wasn't in session. So there wasn't kind of any risk of you know, uh, risk threat to life for legislators or to the president himself. Um, But still a very symbolic act in terms of people expressing outrage at their government and wanting to, I guess, basically see it overturned. Um, And so they did that through, through violent and fairly chaotic means. You know, it's, it's interesting as you're saying, it sounds like there's, you know, just historically, or even leading up to this election, just growing resentment towards the establishment amongst a large portion of the population, which, you know, as you're saying, we also see in the US and give this figure who represents, you know, uh, an opportunity to throw away all of the forces and people and, you know, institutions in some ways that got us here that that make up that establishment. And what's interesting is that what during the events of January 8th, Bolsonaro was not even in Brazil, right? He was in Florida. Um, and it's 
I'm curious to hear from you, how did he respond to these events? And, and are there any ways in which that, you know, contrasted even responses from President Trump in the US or kind of how did Bolsonaro see the events of this past weekend? Yeah, I, I know that he tweeted on January 8th that what was happening in Brasilia in the capital was bad. I know that he tweeted something. I don't know the exact timeline, you know, how long into the events he decided to tweet. Um, you know, it's different from January 6th in the sense of, you know, Bolsonaro wasn't there leading these leading these events. Um, the new president, Lula da Silva, had already been inaugurated. So it wasn't an attempt to kind of stop what had already, what was going to happen. Um, the, you know, Lula had already been seated as the new president. Um, you know, Bolsonaro, according to reports, he's in Florida for um, for health treatment. He's had this long-standing um, uh, abdominal problem from when he was, I guess, nearly assassinated during the previous election campaign. That's another indication of how divisive we're talking about. You know, he was he was stabbed during the last election campaign four bit years ago. Um, so I'm not I'm not sort of sort of fully sure how you know how involved he was with all of this. I don't think we do know that. Um, it doesn't appear that he was as involved, let's say, as Trump was as Trump appeared to be. Uh, so it's it's really hard to say. But I think that you know his critics would say that well he stoked these kind of claims, right? He was the one saying that the only way he would lose would be through a stolen election, through something fraudulent happening, um, and then. You know, he really bucked tradition by not being there at the inauguration ceremony of Lula. He didn't pass the presidential sash to Lula, as had historically been done, um, just like we didn't see Trump at Biden's inauguration. Right. He left and was silent. There was no kind of this is how democracy works. We lost, but we'll fight again. Thank you, my supporters. Now it's time to move on and, you know, be an effective opposition. It was just there was sort of more silence from the Bolsonaro camp after the election and more of a quiet exit um, than we saw from Trump. So how has the new government and Lula responded to these protests? Um, I, I did see reports of arrests, but curious how, where are they placing responsibility and culpability for these events if it's a bit unclear kind of how Bolsonaro was involved? And and where, what are the steps they're taking in the future to respond to this? I think... I think we're still finding that out. I think uh, the immediate response was quite strong. You know, I think you had over 200 people arrested the day of. The military police were there. People being rounded up in buses. And I think the numbers are about like 1,500 have been arrested so far. So like, it's a very, it's a, quite a swift response. Um, I think the Brazilian authorities have learned from January 6th in the US in that regard. Um, Lula came out right away, I think and was very strong with his words. Um, he may have used the word terrorism. Globo, the one of the biggest news publications in Brazil, flat out called it terrorism. Um, uh, Supreme Court has like suspended the governor of the capital um, for, for saying, for basically claiming that he was ineffective in stopping this and there was the security measures were in place as they should have been. Um, so I think you've seen a fairly swift response, but I think we're going to, this is going to play out. I'm sure Brazil will have hearings and committees meeting over this. People are going to be talking about social media and, 
you know, anti-democratic voices spreading lies on social media and, you know, and we'll be talking about Elon Musk probably and his ownership of social media and um, sort of the reestablishment of voices that may have been banned. I, I don't know, but I think there's there's going to be a number of conversations about culpability um, to do with the Brazilian infrastructure and the government and security forces and then also social media and the role that we all play and then Bolsonaro and his culpability in this, you know, Obviously, there are, there are critics of Bolsonaro who are saying he needs to be returned to Brazil right now so he can face justice for this. I, th- I think it's going to be a watch this space situation. And, uh, we'll see kind of where the chips land. Jordan, um, just a quick question. In terms of the political structure in Brazil, I know in the US we obviously have like Republicans and Democrats and there's really no other party that could conceivably win a presidency, at least at this point. Um, is it similar in Brazil? So is Bolsonaro kind of like the dominating figure of the right and Lula is kind of the left person? Yes, no. So on the left side, the Workers' Party has been the dominant sort of representation on the left side for, I guess, the last two decades about. Um, Actually, even before then, you know, because Lula was in opposition um, in the 90s um, as the kind of dominant opposition figure representing the left. Um, but it is, Brazil is a, is a multi-party system. Um, there are lots of political parties uh, and things move around a lot. So in Bolsonaro, when Bolsonaro sort of emerged as a presidential candidate in the 2018 elections, he represented a party that I think hadn't really been represented that much or hadn't had that much power. Um, and since then, he's kind of shifted around within parties. So he's kind of his own political figure in a way um, who sort of makes allegiances as he needs to. Um, But I guess to answer your question more concretely, it's a multi-party system. Um, You do have a dominant party on the left, but then there are centrist parties. There are parties on the right. um, There are more parties on the left, um, but it's just not as clear cut as a straight two-party system. And people just have, you know, two choices. To follow up on that, Jordan, I'm wondering if you have any insight into how some of those other parties or like political heads within those parties have reacted. Has there been a strong kind of support in favor of democracy, not just support of Lula? What have some of the other reactions been, not just from Bolsonaro supporters, but from some of those other people who kind of make up coalitions in a way that we don't have the same way in the U.S.? Sure. I I, 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 mean, I don't know, to answer your question. I don't know. I haven't seen responses from others. I do know that you know, prior to the election, when you know, Bolsonaro and many of his supporters were making claims about fraud and they were questioning the integrity of the Brazilian electoral system, which having watched it, it's, it's extremely rigorous. Um, they use these electronic voting machines uh, I was able to witness a sort of test of these voting machines. Um, and it's a, Brazil has a very proud democratic system. They've only, they've only been a democracy sort of in this itera- in this iteration since the mid eighties. Um, but they're proud about doing it well. And they invest a lot into the, the infrastructure of elections. Um, so with that being said, in the run-up to the elections, it was, I would say it was fairly unanimous across the political spectrum 
that people were supportive of democracy and people were saying, you know, we are a democracy and democratic values and our institutions matter. Um, there was lots of talk about the military in the Biloxi elections because of Bolsonaro's claim of a fraudulent election, because Brazil had a military dictatorship for 20 years between the mid 60s and the mid 80s, and that's in living memory. So you've got this military dictatorship that existed in people's lifetimes. And some people, including Bolsonaro to a degree, have looked fondly at that era as an era of stability and so on. Um, but by and large, those within the political system do not want to see that. And they have chosen to invest in democracy and participate in it. And so prior to the elections, I would say it was fairly unanimous support within Brazilian politics for democracy and wanting to reassure that Brazil has a, you know, a very successful, rigorous and strong democracy with good institutions. I think that's such an interesting and important point to pull out, Jordan, um, considering that some of the protesters were calling for the military to intervene, that that history is is still living memories for so many folks within the country that the constitution, I believe, is only something like 34 years old um, in Brazil. And so a lot of these institutions are new and potentially even fragile. And I'm curious to hear kind of your thoughts on that question is how fragile do you see Brazilian democracy today? Um, this constitution, where do you think it's headed in the future after the events of this weekend? I mean, on the one hand, I don't see it as fragile at all because of what I just talked about with um, the strength of Brazilian democratic institutions and the quality of, the de of their democratic process. But on the other hand, you just you can't deny that um, the military has had a say in who governs in living memory. Um, and so that kind of always becomes something you can fall back on. Like we don't, in the US, we don't have that. There's no, no one could comprehend the idea of all of a sudden the Joint Chiefs of Staff taking over the government. It just, it's incomprehensible for us because we have no experience with that. Um, so whenever you have experience with something, um, you know, and, a, even a percent of the population appreciate that experience and look at it somewhat fondly, there's always going to be a risk there. And so I think, you know, it's important that Brazilian democracy remains something that's inclusive. I think that, you know, as we're seeing democracies across the world sort of become more divided and more polarized and becoming just down to you know, you love 50% people love somebody and hate the other person, and then 50% and the other 50% love their person, hate the other person. Um, that situation is riskier in countries where the military or like dictatorships have had a recent history in running the government because it does become something that people could look at and say, well. Maybe we just need that for a time, um, and that's always a that's always a bigger risk in 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 more in more nascent democracies. You know, we would be remiss to say uh, or to not mention that this is also part of a larger trend across the globe of you know societies turning um, more right, um, turning towards like nationalistic populist leaders who represent a, you know a rejection of. Um, 
the establishment and are trying to, you know, speak honestly and truthfully and all of those things. I mean, we've seen that in Eastern Europe, in Turkey, in Hungary, in North Africa, in Tunisia recently um, with some of the democratic backsliding that's been happening there. I think it's encouraging to hear your projections um, and the confidence that you have in the Brazilian system. Um, and, you know, in some at some level, it'll also be something that we will just have to wait and see. Um, you know, I'm thinking also of the new government that was sworn in in Israel recently, and the, that this is the most right wing government in Israeli history um, and how all these forces are kind of happening simultaneously across the globe. In fact, today, there are fewer people who live in a democracy than several years ago. So things are changing and it's worth our attention, especially because with democracies come, you know, historically, at least protection or the um, attempt at protecting human rights. And so we have to be aware of these things and, and see how they connect to these bigger issues of peace and justice. But I want to focus in on the um, events in Israel in particular, just for a couple of moments and, and talk about that with our team, um, especially um, I think there's a a really important distinction that we should name um, as we're thinking about this rightward shift in Israel. And as we look to the ways that this new government is going to be enacting laws and governing, uh, because what right wing means in Israel means something different than it does in other places, especially the US. And Sharon, I'm wondering if you can clarify that distinction for us as we try to better understand what this new government is like. You're right. It is a, it's kind of a unique um, distinction that's not similar in a lot of ways to what's what means um, or what right and left means in the U.S. Um, so like in Israel, um, they have a nationalized system of healthcare. That's not up for debate. The right does not want that to go away. Everyone is OK with that, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, but the dividing line, traditionally, at least between right and left, has historically been over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with the right taking a more hardline approach against Palestinians and being much more critical of and not supportive of um, a future Palestinian state and the left being more supportive, um, although Palestinians, um, I'm sure, would say that they have not been supportive enough, but they've been more supportive of the idea of a Palestinian state in the future. Um, in recent years, though, it's migrated a bit. Um, those distinctions are still generally true, um, but the divide has been increasingly defined by nationalism and the degree to which um, parties prioritize Israel being a Jewish state in character um, and in majority for Jewish people over um, liberal institutions like an independent judiciary um, and things like property rights and rights that we in liberal democracies would consider kind of building blocks. Um, so the Israeli right tends to prioritize the Jewish nature of the state, whereas the left tends to prioritize the more liberal institutions. So one example of this that's happening right now with the new government being sworn in is that um, they're trying to pass something called the, um, the override clause, which backing up just a bit, um, Israel doesn't have a constitution. They have a set of basic laws that were that are formed by the legislature. So the legislature can amend them in a much easier way than in the U.S. We can amend our constitution. Um, and in the U.S., the separation of powers between the judiciary, um, the Supreme Court and the legislature is enshrined in the constitution. And they don't have something similar in Israel. Um, so basically, this override clause would allow the Knesset, which is Israel's legislature, to write laws that in the text of the law say that the Supreme Court can't overrule this law. Um, 
And the right is pushing this because in historically, and especially in more recent years, the Supreme Court has really been seen as a protector of minority rights for Palestinians. Um, They've slowed down settlement expansion um, attempts. They've um, ruled in favor of Palestinians who own land and things like that. And so the right sees the Supreme Court as a, even though it's a liberal institution, it's standing in the way of Israel being Jewish in character and in the majority. Um, So that's, that's kind of a very broad and overly generalized view of what right and left mean and um, what's going on today. That's helpful, Sharon. And Sarah, I want to draw you in here and get your thoughts on, you know, some of the things that Sharon mentioned, even of what we should be looking at and paying attention to with this new government, especially as outside observers, many of us on this, you know, who are listening are likely Americans. Um, How can we be paying attention and what should we be paying attention to as we, you know, advocate for mutual flourishing and peace in the land? It's a really good question, especially because I myself am not an expert on Israeli politics or the Israeli political system. And I know most of our listeners aren't either. And so sometimes as we follow all of this, it can be really easy to be caught up in the idea of, well, I, I don't know enough about the system or I don't know enough about how the government works to like know the nuance or see what's good or bad or follow the change. And one of the trends that I've been looking for and, and kind of why Brazil came up for me too, and I'm glad we're having this conversation, is anytime you see people or actors, whether they're elected or not, strengthening institutions that support democracy or that support human rights, that's a good thing for peacemakers. And anytime you see people trying to change or erode those institutions, like what Sharon was mentioning with the judiciary, um, that's probably a bad sign. And so starting there and then asking more questions about what's the motivation behind that? What's at stake for everyone, not just, you know, Palestinians? What's at stake for Israelis who are for mutual flourishing, for just peace in Israel and Palestine? You know, kind of asking those types of questions and looking for those kinds of patterns and trends and seeing who's supporting who, like which which politicians that you know are coming out in support of politicians over there that you might not know. Um, but based on kind of what you know about them, gives an indication of their politics or where they're headed. Uh, with some of the the right-wing politicians, I think, too, without getting into all of the specific political issues, like settlements is a big one um, that I followed pretty closely for a few years. And so seeing the U.S. kind of normalize or legitimize politicians who are settlers or are like kind of violent in their advocacy for settlements, um, that shifts how the U.S., sees these big foreign policy issues with Israel-Palestine. It's not just about one person. It starts to kind of drag the line in the sand that we are unwilling to compromise on further and further right as well. So those are the trends I would say to kind of be aware of. What are the issues that you know about or know a little bit about and kind of keep following? And then who are the people who are supporting democratic institutions and who are the people who are eroding them? Um, I know on future check-ins, we'll keep diving into this, right? I'm curious to see what happens with the government with excuse me, some of what Sharon just laid out. And I'm sure we'll have more folks come on to help us kind of pull apart the details of some of those things too. But those would be the big things I'd say is who are the actors supporting democracy and who are the ones who are, for a variety of what I'm going to call selfish reasons, kind of eroding democratic norms in pursuit of power. Jordan, you are an international observer um, and have been thinking and working on these issues for many years, both within Brazil and also Israel Palestine on our team. What are your thoughts? Any any things, any trends or patterns that um, the Telos uh, network should be paying attention to in, in the near future after the events of this weekend and uh, the new government in Israel? Yeah, I, I think what Sarah just brought up is really important. And to me, that's, to me, the biggest threat to democracy 
in any democracy, no matter how old it is, is are we becoming more tribal? Um, are we becoming more exclusive? Um, and like, what, so what we are seeing in many of these countries, including our own, is an increasing tribalism, um, whereby we have mentality of, okay, well, we're in power now, so we're going to do everything we want to do and nothing that the other side wants to do because this is our turn and it's our time. Um, I think there's a phrase in, I think there's a phrase in Kenya. Um, it's like, it's our time to eat. Um, and, and to me, that is what becomes really worrying because then our systems become more exclusive. Uh, we become more divided. And so those who are not in power get angrier um, or they get, or they just get more apathetic and feeling disenfranchised and tired of it. Um, and then we start to see the erosion of institutions by those in power to protect their ability to do things when they're in power. Um, and so I think that's, that's where it gets really problematic for me, um, like, like Sarah was saying. And so, you know, why I think it's on us to look at is like, who we, while we still have a democracy, while we're still living in a democracy, because none of this is guaranteed, are we voting for people who are more tribal or are we voting for people who um, are more inclusive, are willing to compromise and not use compromise as a dirty word? Because at the end of the day, we are a, we are a diverse nation and that's a beautiful thing. And we don't all have same opinions on stuff. So yes, like I have my political beliefs. Would I love a benevolent dictator or that sort of system where all of my political beliefs get implemented um, because I believe that's what's best for me and everyone else. Sure, I would love that. But the problem is there are more people who don't want that than there are who do want that. And so I think it's on us to to to, to think about the kind of people we're electing and are they are they treating this like a ruthless sport or are they willing to say like no, like we have to look after all of us and we have to be more inclusive. I think that's such an important. Um, thing to say from from all of you, especially because that's something that we can also do in our own lives, um, fighting against the sense of tribalism, the sense of polarization, just by the folks that we have in our network and who we build relationships with. You know, one of the core principles of peacemaking that we discuss um, and support and have written on our team is relationship, um, meaning authentic relationships um, are at the core of peacemaking. Um, and especially across lines of difference, authentic relationships across lines of difference and how important it is to create a broader we, right? I think that's so much of the work that we are trying to do, especially in the US in a society that, you know, has historically one of the most polarized in our, in our history um, today is that we are trying to write a new story where all of us have a place in it. And that's difficult work. It, it takes intention and it takes diligence, but it, as you're saying, it's essential to the work of democracy and to forging a community that can, you know, create space for everyone to belong. And so I'd, I'd encourage you listeners, think about that in your own life um, today. How can you think and start creating relationships across lines of difference um, that don't necessarily have an agenda, but just open up opportunity for relationship um, and also stay in touch, 
be on the lookout for reports, newsletters, writings from us about these trends. We will keep reporting on them. Make sure you're signed up and subscribed to our newsletter, which we send every two weeks about events, not only in Israel-Palestine, but across the world as they relate to the opportunity for peace and flourishing. Um, Jordan, thank you so much for your time on the show. Any last word um, to our network? Just thank you guys. I've really enjoyed this. I'm so glad that this team is in play and doing this great work because uh, this podcast has been really beneficial and I love it. We appreciate your time and your insight, Jordan. That was super helpful. Um, and to all of our listeners, thanks for listening. Keep following us on social media. Don't stop donating now that we're done with our end of year campaign. We can't continue this work without your support. Uh, as always, leave a rating and review on our podcast on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, and we'll see you next time.